At Giant Eagle, you may have spotted the Stacker. With uncanny MyPerks ability, she stacks up the perks to choose either dollars off or up to 20% off her entire grocery bill. The Stacker, stacking up huge savings with MyPerks. Find your MyPersonality and transform your shopping into free gas and groceries. Full details at GiantEagle.com slash MyPerks. Perks cannot be earned or redeemed on select items. Restrictions apply. This is a CBC Podcast. The politics and um, discourse around gender, what it has shown us is that it is a space of multiplicity. Ultimately, for me, it's a, it's about a notion of expansiveness and, and the different decisions and different feelings and the way that those change over time, over the years of a person's life and life cycles. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Miguel Gutierrez, you just heard, artist, choreographer, and dancer, and one of my favorite people in the world. We spoke with Miguel about aging within the queer community, making money as an artist, and Madonna's complicated legacy. And just a heads up, listeners, this is the season's final episode, but also the show's final episode. Yes, this is the last episode of Chosen Family. And it was fitting that we had Miguel on because we spoke to him in the very first episode back in 2017. You'll hear more with Miguel later in the show. The year is ending, the season of Chosen Family is ending, and I have to say I feel like a completely different person from who I was in January even 2021, when the year started. In what way do you feel like you've changed? Well, I, I've shared it with you in private. I haven't um, shared this experience on the show, but uh, this year my mom went through a second brain surgery uh, and I become, all of a sudden, back in June, I became a, uh, a caretaker. Um, and I knew this is something that would happen. Like I, you know, I'm an only child. My mom has no partner. Like I knew one day I would become a caretaker, but it was so sudden. She, she was uh, scheduled for a surgery first week of June. Um, and then they called her the week before and they told her that actually her surgery was the day after the call. Um, so that day my life really change and I drop her off at the hospital she has a surgery the day after I have to like drive back alone on the highway and I'm not I wasn't that used to driving alone on the highway at that point um and and I knew in that moment that my life had changed you know when you have those days that you're like okay this is never going to be the same again ever right there's a before and an after but what do you think about becoming your mom's caretaker for that time like in what ways do you think that changed you like what did it force you to find within yourself well i think i think you know i'm 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 an only child and i for her i was always like her son you know i think she the role of mother for you know obviously most mothers and all and most parents is really important in their identity and for her it was definitely important but in that moment, I I was calling the shots. It was a really strange flip. It was like all of a sudden it was my decision. It was me kind of speaking to the doctors and me kind of being the parent. And that's what I mean by like that shift um, that I think happens for a lot of people. Yeah, it does for sure. So many people find themselves in that situation where these responsibilities are suddenly thrust upon them. People in their 30s, this is when you start to think about, like, what are the things that might start happening to your older parents? And I don't know, like, I I don't think that I could have handled what you went through. I don't think I have it in me. I hate the word, like, becoming a man. Like, I think that's so loaded <laughs> and so stupid. Um, but I think I was a boy for a long time. You know, I right. think it was... Well, you're becoming a grown-up. Yeah. Um, oh, I hate that worse. <laughs> I don't know. It's so like parenty and, you know, paying your bills on time. And, and I know. Well, I, yeah, I still don't feel like a grown up. I don't know when that feeling is ever going to come. You know, I feel like a kid 
with grown-up responsibilities. That's so funny because you're so responsible. I feel like a kid trying to navigate that. And I think at this point, it's also kind of futile to ask, like, has this year changed you? Like, every year has changed us for at least the last five years. Like, it's been such a roller coaster. Although maybe this year actually showed me how little I've changed in some ways. You know, I think that in 2020, mm. like, when the pandemic first happened, um, especially in the first, like, quarter of it, we were all having so many conversations about the possibility of, you know, the world changing, ourselves changing. And for me, I just, I very quickly reverted back into like old emotional habits, you know, like again, my avoidance and my, I feel like so many of my fears mm. came back. And I think in a weird way, this year showed me that I'm not as far along in my own journey as I thought I was. <laughs> I don't want to end this last episode on a downer, but like, yeah, the car is run down. I'm not even in the drive. I'm not even in the passenger seat. We're like pulled over. The emergency <laughs> blinkers are on and I'm standing by the side of the road waiting for someone to rescue me. <laughs> <laughs> Did we ever tell the story when we had a flat? So we were on our way to a podcast recording in Gatineau a few years ago. And I didn't didn't really drive at the time. We were with our friend Mark. And then eventually that we have a flat tire in the car. Um, we were just like three queers on the side of the road. Useless. Useless queers. Well, then, um, well, for a little while, like no one was pulling over to help us. Um, and then this like young woman pulls over she it's cold it's like i think it was november or was it in april no, it was april it was spring yeah it was but april like, but it was cold, cold. it was still yeah, yeah it was still yeah. cold and she just comes out of her car she has like a parka on but she's wearing flip-flops isn't she pregnant <laughs> yeah i think she was pregnant as well and she had like this whole tool kit she just got right down there <laughs> boosted the car up, took the wheel off, put the spare on. And we were just so in awe of her. And she was so funny and just like, you know, a straight cis woman, but like butch in the best way possible. <laughs> and she, yeah. And in a way, like it's, I don't know, that moment also just sort of like, if we want to stay on the theme of like imagery and symbols, like that sort of, I think what this show, like doing Chosen Family has really shown me that there are moments where you feel really stuck or there are moments where you're in distress, but you really, we really aren't alone. And mm. I think that this whole show has really been like a love letter to the idea of community in the most supportive sense. Um, and I feel really grateful for the kinds of conversations that we've gotten to have on the show. I feel like even in our conversations, just one-on-one, -on -one, like they've pushed me to really look at myself, you know, and be honest with myself in ways that maybe I fully haven't before. So I feel very grateful for that. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who likes new beginnings, you know, so in a way I'm, I'm, sad but i'm also okay that we're closing this chapter we did like 57 episodes i think and we've had so many good conversations and i love the guests that we've had and the listeners that we've had and but it's really hard to close a chapter it's yeah. really hard to be like what do you want to say when you end the chapter i feel very lucky that we've had this platform that has allowed us to speak with people whose art really means a lot to us, you know? And I think this show is a very earnest show. Like we're living in the age of like snark and sarcasm and I am snarky and sarcastic, but I love that we have this space where we can really just wear our hearts on our sleeves. And I think that we've done that. I think we'll sort of take a sex in the city approach and leave the door open to come back when we feel like it. You know, when we feel yeah. like, but I, I think that the spirit of the show and the work that we've done in the show really speaks for itself. So our guest today for the final episode of Chosen Family was a, a guest on the first episode. Uh, he's my friend Miguel Gutierrez, who is uh, based in Brooklyn. Miguel is a big deal in the art world. 
He's shown dance pieces at festivals and biennales across North America and Europe. Um, he's been to the Montreal FTA Festival. He's been a part of the Whitney Biennale in New York City. And recently, he also launched his own podcast, Are You For Sale? It's a series about the uh, interesting intersection of philanthropy and art making. It's a must listen. You have to listen to it. My way into Miguel's work was his 2018 show, Sedona, which is this brilliant cabaret show where he takes Madonna songs, usually the up-tempo ones, and makes them really sad. As everyone knows, listening, we are both super big Madonna fans. And it was the perfect place to start our conversation. Um, I've seen it five <laughs> times. I feel I'm your biggest Sedona fan. I think I'm up there with. In- you are the you're the, you're like a Sedona super fan. You're like the creep. You're like the creepy person. You're like oh god, Tomas back. <laughs> I saw it. I mean, I saw it online last year. I saw it in oh. a hotel in New York City. We brought you to Montreal to do it twice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I think yes. I saw it. At- it was a hotel dining room, everybody. Let's just make it clear. <laughs> um, and it's such a fun concept. And we I wanna like I wanna start there because obviously I think that's a good thread for the three of us to to start with Madonna. Um so you cover Madonna songs, but sad Madonna songs ish. Not always sad, but you make them sad. No, I we make we Well you take the happy yeah. You make them. That's sad. it. Exactly. Thank you, Trina, for fully understanding the concept. <laughs> I didn't get <laughs> it after five <laughs> times. I'm not sure still what it is. <laughs> Tom's like, like they're just all sad <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> yeah. What I loved about the show so much is that you didn't go for the obvious choices. And one of my favorite moments in the show is when you did um, her song called Time Stood Mm. Still, which was on the Next Best Thing soundtrack, which was never a single and is like a super deep cut. And your version of it seriously was beyond stunning. Oh, thank you. And I think that your show um, really highlights her talents as a songwriter that always gets overlooked, you know, by everything else. Um, And I feel like, you know, even watching her now, like it feels like she doesn't even really honor herself as an artist. And I'm curious about how you feel about where she's at today, like her Instagram and just her sort of demeanor. What is your read on that? I knew you were going to ask me this question and I have grappled spiritually with myself. (laughs) As to how to answer it, because as like, uh, you know, a feminist and feminist ally, I feel that I cannot drag her any more than she's being dragged. But come on, it looks kind of, it's a poco, está loca. You know, it's like, it just, it's just like, I, I, I guess my feeling about her, and I don't try to like occupy myself too much with her present thing because I think a lot about Sadana is about the way that her presence uh, appeared in my youth, you know, like how she was a figure as a, you know, queer Latinx kid growing up in New Jersey, like listening to Madonna and then whatever through the 90s as well, obviously. But I just, I mean, I think she's a perfect example of all the kind of horrible trappings of fame, you know, and what it is to surround yourself with a lot of yes people. And also, but like, also what it is to have endured 40 years plus of media scrutiny and vilification, right? So like, it's 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 like, I, I don't put it all on her because I think like she's a product of the forces that she's been working inside of. It It's so bizarre, but yeah, I don't, I just feel a a kind of sadness for her because when I see her, like all I see is what you're describing is like the pain of having lived in this world for 40 years and the toll that it's taken and the way that her ego is so attached to all of this. Like I just see suffering when I see her now. Yeah. Um, and it makes me sad because she is someone, you know, that I, in my youth too, like derive so much strength from. And 
to see a hero in this state. But I think I think that's what I love about Sadana is that you the sort of that 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 uh, sadness of of you know seeing her, but also what she means to us as queer people and what you know the sort of spiritual uh depth of her music in so many ways and also like the comedic aspect there because there are really funny uh moments in the show like one <laughs> one yes. is you, when you literally call her out for the way she uses you know black and brown um music uh, either it's Laisla Bonita or Vogue and uh do, do you want to talk a bit more about that and that sort of like interesting relationship of how she's used uh um queer culture Yeah, so, you know, she's like an Italian-American from the Midwest who has like this weird Latinx fetish. And also like, you know, like many white American artists is, you know, also fetishizes black artists, right? That's not that's not necessarily new. But I had definitely always noticed growing up, like, you know, like, uh, like, and, uh, you know, seeing, listening to her songs and like she would in, in bring in this Spanish moments. And of course it's like next to some guitar, you know, and then like, uh, you know, she's wearing like a flamenco outfit in La Isla Bonita video. You're like, okay, what exactly, where are we exactly? You know, like, are we in the Canary <laughs> Islands? You know? La Isla Bonita. And then, like, and then I went to see her live once, only once. And I remember it was very, like, it's a small world, which I think I mentioned to you before. Like, you know, it's like, and now we're in Japan, you know, like, bare branches and black and white, you know. And now we're in Latin America, candles and guitars, you know. And I was like, this is kind of crazy, like, to use this platform <laughs> to, like, this, you know, this crazy uh, notion of whatever the heck, global internationalist uh, reduction. You know, it really felt like Epcot Center. And so... I remember that always stayed with me. And so, uh, so I, you know, with Sedona, it's like, you know, you'll, I'll just be like riding my bike usually. It's, I honestly, like, I feel like 90% of my ideas for Sedona come from riding my bike. And, and then I was like, oh, La Isla Bonita. And I just had this notion of like, it would be funny to, to, to sing it in Spanish, to invert the, the song and sing it in Spanish and sing the Spanish parts in English <laughs> and, and then kind of do this as a, like an acapella number. So that happened, and that was just people just go crazy for it because it's very satisfying to hear that version of it. I always sort of attribute my entrance into dance like a couple things. One was watching my sister's cheerleading competitions and like having the Nomi Malone like ability to like learn what I was seeing just by watching. Amazing. And uh, I literally stepped in one day, one day, like a girl wasn't there, and I was like, I can do it. Like, and they were like, ah, you know, and uh, <laughs> which was. Just ridiculous because my sister like hated cheerleading. My sister was there like under like this compulsory femininity bullshit. Um, and then similarly, again, also with my sister, we used to clear out the living room, dining room, and like one person would put on a song on the record player, and the other person had to like instantly improvise. And that was a big, uh, that was like a big thing that we did because we were both sort of social nincompoops who had nothing else to do on a Friday <laughs> night. So we would like entertain each other. And so I always say that like that was my entrance into you know, queerness in a way because, you know, we're both gay without knowing it, um, you know, per and also gift, like almost like this gift economy thing where it was like dancing for the person I loved most in the world, you know, and, and like just, you know, the enjoyment of the other was like wrapped up in like how out of control you could be while you were dancing. And so mm. I feel like those were my, those were definitely my things. And then I, you know, ended up going to like a, uh, this kind of, everything under one roof kind of dance school for a little while where I took ballet and musical comedy classes and jazz and gymnastics. And then I went to like a more serious dance school, New Jersey school of ballet, but I didn't like that as much because they weren't as fun. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, kind of followed it. It was like a lot of fights with my parents, like a lot of fights. My, my parents were immigrants from South America, from Colombia, and they were definitely not keen on the notion of having a little like homo prancing kid. <laughs> And when you moved back to New York, you kind of immersed yourself in the late 90s, early 2000s kind of dance world. And you lived uh, a few years later, you lived in a one of the places in an apartment uh, in Bushwick pre-gentrification. Um, and there's a clip, there's a clip on YouTube of a show you did. Did you do a lot of shows in that apartment? We did a lot of uh 
so yeah, it was this live workspace. It was living there. That was where I lived when I moved back to New York, actually, from like 97 to 2005. So I lived there for about eight years. And yeah, this was pre, pre-girls Bushwick, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I like to identify it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was like dogs, like wild dogs roaming the streets and like cars on fire. Like that's not even an exaggeration. Um, but yeah, we would do performance parties. Uh, I put on a, a lot of performance parties. You know, this is way before crowdfunding. So we would do like benefits, you know, remember benefits, <laughs> yeah. everybody, you know, like you ask your friends to do something for free and, you know, you know, charge $5 at the door and you're like, oh my God, we raised $300. Um, and, um, and then I did my first sort of evening length dance performance in that okay. space in 2000. Yeah, totally. You also have, you've recorded new songs. We've gotten to listen to a few of them, which is really exciting. And one of them that stood out to us um, was um, a new song called Wearing the Mask, M-A-S-C, um, where you sing, it feels like survival sometimes, not my natural state. And I'd love to hear more about that lyric and what is your relationship to masculinity and your own feelings of your own gender? Oh, it's such an interesting question. Um, so, yeah, so this is, I have this new music project uh, called Sueño which in Spanish means both dream, but also means sleep. Um, and that particular song, Wearing the Mask, my feelings about you know masculinity are that it is a costume <laughs> in many ways. Um, it is also a kind of drag. It is also a kind of choice. It is also uh, something sort of ineffable you know, in the way that gender, I think, in many ways feels kind of ineffable. Um, it's kind of a moving target, honestly, right? Gender is sort of like a moving target. And you're sort of always kind of like, I don't know, or, you know, yeah. it's just like, and I, 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 I will say, though, I recently, um, so I was using he and they pronouns for like a couple of years. And then I recently decided to sort of uh, uh, claim just he, him, his pronouns. And it was like a very, I don't know, I'm still sort of processing what that decision came from because I feel like there's a very almost like um, automatic use of the they pronoun now by a lot of people, mm -hmm. which I completely, you know, look, I'm all about self-determination when it comes to gender. People can do what they want. But I just was starting to feel like, am I just sort of doing a bandwagon thing here? Like what is... I think I, did, I do want to understand what it is for me to claim this cisgender identity. Um, not in opposition to something, but actually more like as a mode of respect for the people for whom trans identity is critical. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be a tourist uh, in oh, transness. Oh, wow. Gender tourist. You know, that's not, doesn't, doesn't that's seem right. A, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, you know, and it's you know this is really like this is dicey because I'm not here to I'm not here to police anybody's anything like I'm not it's not it's really just it was about my own personal feelings of authenticity and inauthenticity yeah you know absolutely it's it's so interesting to hear you bring that up because these are conversations that I've had with people and we've all sort of felt like oh we can't talk about this mm -hmm. like publicly this idea of gender tourism because obviously no one wants to judge people's decisions on how they identify and how they want to move through the world or how they want to be seen. And it's weird that queerness has this sort of cachet now, even for straight people. Like I saw this unironic tweet about a straight person demanding that their queerness as a straight person be respected. And like... <laughs> Sorry, you're not watching my eye roll, but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, there's just, it's just weird to see this cultural cachet that queerness now has. Queer, queer, being, I mean, being gay is passe, and then queer is kind of like meh, and then I think it's like, 
really more when it comes to being trans or gender non-conforming or, or non-binary that people and especially I feel I feel people on the outside are looking in and they're like oh they're just doing it for attention and I think there's there needs to be a broader conversation about what exactly what you're saying like this is everyone has a right to self-determination when it comes to gender but we have to be really mindful of entering these spaces of who was there before and who who has been having these conversations for like literal centuries, right? So I think that's kind of the... the well, for me, it's also about... I mean, it's it's interesting because I think trans as a concept, you know, if we, if we were to think of it as a concept, which is a little bit of a strange operation to wield onto it, but uh, if we're going to speak conceptually for a minute, trans does represent the notion of possibility, right? Trans, yes. trans absolutely represents this idea of movement. It represents this idea of uh, not indeterminacy, indeterminacy in an, any kind of flaky way, but just the sort of, a, a, it's a nod towards all the indeterminacy that's in the world. Like, you know, um, and at the same time for a lot of, you know, I think for many trans people, uh, from what I can gather, you know, it is a life or death situation you know it is and it and that you know that violence that you speak about tom it's like it's still happening right and so you know i think that that again i want to sort of be respectful towards the reality of that i also you know because of my age i came up in a moment when um and i think this is still happening because <laughs> i'm not dead so i still think of it as my moment <laughs> but uh but uh, you know when the notion of what a man could be was being really stretched open wide. And so I think that there is still for me, I guess, and maybe this, I don't know, is this a, is this a conservative feeling? I hope not. But that like I can, you know, my relationship to makeup or costume or outfit or presentation or femme gesture or um, femme speech, right? My voice can be very femme uh, is still an expression of masculinity to me. Like I don't need to sort of be like, well, that means... X, Y, Z, you know, like I, I, that was a strange (laughs) sequence of letters to choose, but uh, (laughs) like it doesn't, it doesn't fall into this, you know, because I act this way or present this way that, well, now I got to be a they, you know, and I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily the same thing. I I just don't feel like those are the same thing. Um, So I don't know, but I, I also feel like, I hope I'm not speaking out of my depth here. Yeah. No, I don't think so at all. And I think, I think, again, I think these are conversations that are happening in friend groups. It's just people are reluctant to talk about it more publicly. But I do think that that it's really important. And to do it, you know, obviously, like we are right now, like in a really gentle and compassionate and understanding way. And these are all questions that so many of us have. And it's very hard to come up with any definitive answers. Yeah. But just to ask the questions, I think, is meaningful. Yeah. I mean, I think the 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 politics and um discourse around gender, what it has shown us is that it is a space of multiplicity, right? And so this that is this and I I know that people get really heated and really freaked out about these conversations. And it, you know, justifiably so, like I said, when there's life or death issues on the line, how could you not? But Ultimately, for me, it's a it's about a notion of expansiveness and and the different decisions and different feelings and the way that those change over time over the years of a person's life and life cycle. So yeah, I think something that is confusing a lot well of people said. is when someone else is claiming something for themselves. Very easily, we go to lack. We go to feeling that it's taking something away from us. And I think in the capitalistic you know, uh, system that we live in, sometimes it actually does when it exploits people. But I think when it comes to identity, that's what I've come to realize, like other people's identity literally do not take anything away from me. So I think people need to, I think that's a big, that's a big thing right now. When people feel attacked by other people's identity, I'm like, this is really not changing much in your life. Yeah. And I think the thing that's so tricky about conversations about gender, which is, you know, right next to the conversations about race, um, is, is exactly what you're saying that you know this idea that somehow the the expansiveness or the the call for expansiveness and inclusion is going to somehow erase you and to me that's just such a small-minded notion it's just like let it go yo like <laughs> yeah. let it go open up come on like yeah 
Maybe they, I don't, yeah, it's it's a question that I wrestle with a lot. Maybe on some level it's because, maybe that fear of being erased is because that's what they've always tried to do to other people. And now they're scared of it sort of happening to them, which is not our intention. Yeah. But maybe that's where some of their fear comes because they've tried to do that to other people. Well, I feel like it's also a both and moment for me. It's kind of like both things can be true. You know, it can be true that you are somebody who experiences discrimination or oppression. And you can also be a person who's discriminating and oppressing other people. Like, hello, big surprise. And it can also be true, you know, it can be true that you, you know, there are certain things that cis women have to contend with that are totally ridiculous. And there that there are things that trans women have to deal with that are totally ridiculous. Like both things can be true. It doesn't we don't have to live in some notion of like mutual exclusivity. Uh, and I th- that that to me is again, it's like a very narrow-minded politic when we just need to sort of establish a fiefdom of our own around identity. To me, that's like that's not the way to do it. That's not the way to go forward. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. A few minutes ago, you uh, you shared, you didn't share your age, but you shared at my age. Um, did you, I know you because you're my friend uh, and you reached a milestone in the last year. Do you want to share with this milestone? Yes, is? I have. Yes, I'm a half century old. I turned a half century this year. Yeah. Yeah. My low you can't see my lower half, but it's already turned to stone. I think listeners will be shocked. Uh I guess people always are shocked when I tell them my age, because they definitely they everybody says I read younger or I look younger and and, um I definitely sound younger, (laughs) which is kind of a frustrating thing, but yeah. But fifty today really is not what 50 was in the 80s. Like, it's just not the same. 50 is the Don't new 25. Don't say that. Thank you, Trina. No. But, well, but in some ways it really is. Yes, Samantha Jones. Like, I know that that's like... <laughs> yes, J-Lo. My God. But it's true. Like, the people forget that the Golden Girls were, like, yes, in their mid-50s. 50s. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. like, they were not in their 70s. Yeah, and that Estelle Getty was, like, three years older than you know, be Arthur, but <laughs> playing, playing her mother. But yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's true. I had a particular situation, a situation where I was making a piece, this bridge called my ass a couple of years ago. And I applied for a bunch of stuff that I didn't get. And it really sent me into a tailspin of worry, uh, partly because of my age. And I was like, okay, I've been at this for a long time. If I'm not getting the support I need right at the moment that I feel like I'm at my most clear of what I want to make, like, what does that mean? What do you know about money and making money as an artist now that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Oh, gosh. I mean, what do I know now that I wish I knew? I wish I had thought a little bit more or I understood a little bit more about what the origins of this money were um, and what I wanted to sort of, how I wanted to think through that. And if I wanted that content to influence the work in any way, um, maybe. I don't know that I would have made, you know, I don't know that I want to make art about grant writing. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that's like, sounds like the most world's most boring piece. But um, <laughs> but I do think that like, it. I think that I, as a first gen immigrant, uh, you know, child of immigrants, I was so um, caught up in like learning the game and learning how to do the game better than the game organizers or <laughs> game designers. You know, that's something that you often, a pressure that you have as a as a first gen person. And, you know, you learn how to be obedient in a way. You learn how to like be 
the model minority. And I wish I had less, I wish I had not worried about that so much. Um, yeah. I, um, like I've been making a living, um, from my creative work exclusively for the last five years. And when I made that decision to like, let go of the day jobs and really just go for this full time, that pressure to survive through your art, I found took a lot of, took away a lot of the joy of the art and the joy in the creative process. And I'm wondering for you, how do you protect your joy in trying to make money at the same time? Yeah. Protecting joy. That's so critical. You know, it gets harder and harder and harder, I will say. And I don't want to like dissuade anybody out there listening, but. um, Oh my God. I was hoping you were going to say it gets easier. (laughs) No, it gets harder because, you know, I mean, again, I feel very fortunate. I've been in the field for a long time. Opportunities are offered to me. uh, Although I still also have to hustle for opportunities. Right. So it's a, it's a balance. It doesn't like, I'm not like set for life in any way, shape or form, but because, you know, as your profile in a certain field rises, you know, you do have maybe more demands put on you. You know, you're asked to do more things. You know, will you be on this panel? Will you do this talk? Will you, you know, um, uh, you know, write this article, blah, 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 all these different things, you know, and all of that's make, great. Make a and, piece, make a piece well, for Ballet de Lorraine or be in yes, the make, <laughs> Well, that's, that's, a, those, yes, that also happens. And those are the good things. Well, those are the cool thing. Those are the really, the, that's the, like the exciting part. Cause that's actually about making stuff, you know, but there's a lot of these little, like other kinds of commitments. And I think that what you have to do is you just have to, re, you know, you have to keep carving space out for the intimacy with the work. And, you know, I try to protect that to the extent that I can. I mean, I still love rehearsing. I still love being in a room with other people, figuring something out together. And I think that that love has not waned. Um, And that's also a kind of uh, fluency that I have developed by being in this field for, you know, 30, 40 years. So that's kind of what you have to protect. But it's it is tough. I won't. There's no one size fits all to answer that question. In what way does it get harder, though? Like as you get older and as the as you continue in this field, because once people know your work, they have a certain idea about you, and then you know it gets scarier to experiment. Sometimes mm. it feels like. I mean, I don't feel like my work, my dance based work, is so on brand or brandable that like if I do something different, people are going to be like, wow, we were expecting naked people and you put on clothes, you know, like, I don't think it's like, you know, I think there are other choreographers whose work is a lot more visually legible from work to work that really does inhibit them from making new decisions. I worked early on in my career with certain people who were really known for doing a certain thing in their work. And I saw how challenging it was for them to break out of that expectation. And you know, and then I think there's just in general a, a, a sort of dismissal of people who enter their middle age. I think there's a, a dismissal of, of of people who have been doing something for a long time. Even I think, especially in the United States, where you know there's a lot of celebration of people who are emerging, and there are people who are like you know nearly dead. <laughs> and then there's this whole like <laughs> this whole area in the middle of like we don't know what to do with you because we don't have enough venues, we don't have enough money. And we don't have enough jobs. So, you know, there's like this free-floating thing that happens to you at a certain point in your career, it feels like. And do you feel like that's what you're confronting now? And is that scary? Like, how do you push through that? I mean, it is. It, I have been confronting it. I feel like I've been sort of facing it for a couple of years. Um, I mean, on some level, I just make my work, right? Like, I'm just somebody who makes shit. I'm just going to be making shit till, you know, I'm like, you know, <laughs> like keel over, you know, I'll probably keel over and die while, you know, like I'm like recording my last track, you know, you know, (laughs) and just like that, (laughs) he made his last piece of art. Um, So, (laughs) I mean, that's how I think about it, but like, I was waiting for, (laughs) and just like that to come out. (laughs) It really has been the simmering tension under this entire conversation. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I think I I don't know. I I, I think you just like I, I I you know you 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 talk about. It. I mean, I make a podcast. I'm like I I you know my work. I have so many different kinds of work that I make. I have work that's very like legible and like this is what I think in is what you hear. And then I have work where it's like, what the hell was that? You know, like like I and I just yeah. I, I just believe in that range. I, I like to make different kinds of things because I just am interested in all these different kinds of ways of expressing myself. I I just am like, yeah, I do a lot. People do a lot. Yeah. yeah. Right. And and what I love is really clearly you you will always take risk. You'll always kind of put it on the line, and that's something. And I think this is why. I mean, we're friends, but also you're one of my favorite artists, and oh, it's kind of a you. trippy experience to 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 live that. Um, and we are also both sober. Yes. And I want to kind of like wrap things up with sobriety and how, in a way, sobriety. Gave, it, it gives me, and I, I don't know about you, but it gives me a blueprint to keep going, you know, to kind of be open to new experiences, to kind of acknowledge fear when I'm fearful, to um, celebrate gratitude, to don't not necessarily take myself too seriously. Oh, yeah. Um, so through all of this journey, because you've been sober for, for, for a minute. Um, Long time. <laughs> how, and you've spoken about uh, your kind of how sobriety is, you know, uh, has helped you, for example, uh, manage debt, you know, and sobriety yeah. is not only about alcohol, it can be about money, it can be about sex, it can be about love. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, where are you at right now with that? I'm drunk as hell. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I've been drinking since dawn, honey. <laughs> Sobriety is the new drunk. No. Um, no, I'm drinking my green tea and my smoothie. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of the foundation for everything. Like, I don't think any of this other shit would get done if that weren't the case. I got sober 23 years ago. Um, and... Uh, I feel really lucky and that that's what happened to me and that that's been my part of my story. Um, And yeah, under the sort of way that I have gone about it and the way that I've learned about it, um, part of what has made it possible to sort of continue is that sense of like coming back down to earth again and again and again. I think we have, you know, there's a long sort of storied history of, alcoholic artists who like fizzled out or addict artists who, you know, fizzled out and, and maybe ones who didn't, but necessarily like, but they just became like these kind of caricatures of themselves or, you know, these divas and, and, and we celebrate that we make fun of that. We sort of own that too. But I, I think that I, I feel that I want to be part of the generation that is rewriting the story of the, successful artist or of the artist period, you know, and that we don't have to become these sort of lone, isolated geniuses that like, you know, sit bitter at a bar and I'm like, nobody understands me. You know, it's like, that's just so boring to me, you know? I mean, because it's, nobody makes anything in isolation, right? You may make your work on your own, but you know, you probably did not build the computer you wrote your songs on. You maybe didn't build the desk, you know, you like, we're all in relationship to other people all the time and the labor of others and the generosity of others. And then if you make performing art products, then, you know, the willingness and generosity of others to receive the work. So there's a trans, you know, there's a sort of uh, transaction there that it has to happen. I just, I just feel like what sobriety opened me up to was that realization that there is this uh, constant interconnectedness, you know, and I don't mean it exclusively from like some sort of kumbaya, like we're all happy and free. No, we're not. We're definitely in different places, but no, none of us is doing any of this shit alone. Like, and we're not going to get through it alone, you know, and that's what, that's what sobriety has offered to me, you know, because I've learned that everybody is going through something. Everybody has a story to tell about their own challenges and difficulties that they're contending with. So I'm not unique in my own difficulties. Sad to say. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Like, uh, God, like, it's just so weird that, like, again, this is our last episode and it feels like everything you just said has tied together the last three seasons Mm. of conversations that we've been having on the show. And that just feels so powerful. So thank you so much for putting those words together like I'm just stunned right now because it really 
that's everything that we've been trying to express on this show. And now we have it in this like beautiful moment from you. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I want to say thanks to both of you for having done this podcast for so many years, for making a space for queer politics and trans politics and the politics of artists of color and, you know, the diff- all the different kinds of ways that you've taken the show uh, you know, because I've been tracking it and listening to it for all these years. And I just think you've done something really incredible. And it's just an extraordinary document of our time. And uh, oh my God. a lot of, uh, do- and also a document of care. I think the two of you have shown what care can look like in the, in the world that we live in now. So thank you for that. Thanks so much. Yeah. Oh my God, you're making me cry. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. Love I miss you. you so much. Oh. I'm really excited to see you. <laughs> let's all meet yeah, in hopefully. Let's meet in Albany. <laughs> Miguel Gutierrez. You can listen to his podcast, Are You For Sale, wherever you get your podcasts. To stay up to date with Miguel's music project, Sueño, and his future performances, you can subscribe to his newsletter at miguelgutierrez.org and follow him on Instagram at a boy like that. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with? So I think it's very fitting to end this entire show with one of my biggest obsessions of all time, which is now back in a new iteration. My obsession is the new Sex in the City series, and just like that, which is... <laughs> it's the worst title for anything I've ever heard. Like, I can't stress that enough. I just feel like, and just like that, are four of the most insignificant words in the English language like they don't mean anything (laughs) the more I live the more I find that if you have good friends in your corner anything's possible Harry party of three (laughs) so why are you obsessed are you so is the show in your because you're a connoisseur you're a fan of the of yes. Sex and the City. Is is I watched two episodes. I'll tell you what I think after. But what did you? Th- yeah. What, is it is it good? I knew I was gonna love it no matter what. But I was genuinely surprised at how decently solid it was. I know a lot of people have said that they hate how the show is like, you know, trying to be woke, quote unquote, and sort of make up for the lack of diversity of the original series. And I agree that there are moments that are a bit heavy handed. But I think that what I love about this new series is that for so long, like these women have really been living in a fantasy. You know, the New York of Sex in the City is not the real New York. It's a very rich, straight white woman's New York. Um, And What I love about this new series is that it's taking these characters that we've known for so long that have lived in a bubble and is forcing them to, to some extent, confront the real world. And I think that, yeah, it's awkward and it's cringy as fuck. Like, let's talk about it. Let's acknowledge it. Let's talk about how cringy this is. Because for so long, the cringiness and the flaws of the character, of all the characters, were so unacknowledged. And I feel like the new series is actually shining a spotlight on their flaws. And I think that that's great. And I think that that's really funny. And I think in so many ways, it's appropriate that the show is coming back today. And of course, it's really painful to watch Stanford in the first few episodes. Like just a few months ago, uh, Willie was the actor. Willie Garson. Willie Garson was still alive and and, obviously shot the show and then he died recently. Um, but I think for a lot of people, Stanford was one of the sort of like early gay representations for our generation. It's early, early is relative, right? But for people yes. our age, it's like we, the, one of the exactly. first gay men I saw on screen was, was, was him. Um, so I felt, yeah, I was happy to see him. I, I mean, I, he was, he's a bit bitchy in what they, in what they did with him in the, in the reboot, but I was yeah. still just happy to see him cause I'm really fond of him. Me too. And I do agree. And again, like the number of flaws and things that are wrong with Sex and the City are too long (laughs) to list. But I think at the same time, there has to be an acknowledgement about the way that it did shake up the culture, Mm. you know, and it became the template 
for so many shows that came after. And just in terms of breaking barriers, in terms of what we could talk about on TV, on a mainstream show, you know, it was a game changer. And there's a reason that it still is able to draw people in, you know, and that sort of exists beyond whether you like the show or not. Like, its cultural impact is sort of undeniable. Sorry to the haters. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. What are you obsessed with? Okay, so this is the last episode and, you know, I've been, you know, a bit sad, a bit nostalgic and I'm really trying really hard not to be overdramatic. So what I've been doing is listening to songs about goodbyes. <laughs> like, so my obsession is songs <laughs> about goodbyes. Um, you know, I think there's, it's, it's it's a genre on its own, right? It's like love songs about saying goodbye to someone you love and it can be saying goodbye to someone, you know, a parent or someone who dies there are silly songs like NSYNC's <laughs> Bye 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 is on that <laughs> playlist. And re-listening, I'm like, who are they even? I mean, it's a person, it's a girl, but what? Like this song. It's makes so no funny sense. because I recently um, re-listened to that song, like just a few days ago, for no reason, <laughs> and like it's such a good song. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm also listening to Mitsu's "Bye yes. Bye Monka Boy." Yeah, um, Elton's Goodbye Ugh. Yellow Brick Road is also up there yes. with me. It, it is, is also up there. Um, I One song I didn't know because, you know, I'm not a big Mariah fan, but Mariah has a song called Bye yeah, Bye. Yeah, and I think that one is about, um, like, losing someone. All the the Lamely are very attached to that song. That's like the song that the Lamely goes to whenever they lose a relative. Oh, it's like the Mariah Lamely like death anthem. Okay, okay. One of my favorite songs ever is "Together Again." Janet Jackson. So it's not specific. It's not good. It's like goodbye, but also yes, see you soon. Which is see you fitting again, for the end of this show. Know? Like I want people to know that yeah. I think that the announcement of this being the end was a little bit sudden, and people are like, "What? Where is the show going?" You know, I posted I posted about it on social media, and the response has really been so touching and moving. And there's a part of me that feels guilty about not doing the show anymore because I do think the show has been like a bit of a lifeline for people during the pandemic. And I I feel like, I know we're not letting them down, but there's a part of me that feels like that Janet Jackson song. It's like, we may be together again, you know? Like, we're not saying this is never going to happen again. It's just the end for right now. I think this song is really special to me, Together Again, because um, (laughs) it was a hit when my mom started dating the man who became my stepfather for a few years, who eventually died of cancer in 2004. Um, and to this day, like whenever I hear the song or she hears the song, because the song is literally about someone looking yeah. up from above, right? Um, and with everything that's been going on in the last, like, as I said in this episode, and like in the last couple of years in my family, like, I don't know, there's something in the the sort of, there's a hope sometimes in yeah. goodbyes. It's hard to find it, but I think there's a hope in goodbyes. And to me, Janet's together again, really um, yeah, no, it's captures a, it's that. A f- I mean, beyond phenomenal song. But if I had to go, I think like, especially with you and our friendship, I think it would have to be a Spice Girls <laughs> song. 
Um, my favorite is Viva Forever, but in the last year, you've been uh, an advocate for their song yes. Goodbye, which was released after Jerry left. I don't know. I think it's like the song that I need to listen to right now to make peace with everything and also say, like, remember that friendship goes beyond work and beyond projects and beyond a of podcast. Of course it does. This is how water signs communicate. We make a playlist or we send you <laughs> lyrics. Music is a stand-in for water signs. <laughs> That's the perfect way to end. Oh, Trina, it's been... I mean, we're going to keep working no, together. We can't do, no, things. we can't do I a mean, goodbye to each other, please. It's a goodbye <laughs> to our audience. <laughs> I really, really want to thank all the, the people who've helped us along the way. Uh, people at CBC, RF Narani, um, Tina Verma, and all the producers that we've worked with. Catherine Stockhausen as a bookings producer. Um, this has been, you know, these two seasons with CBC have been such a privilege to have this platform to be able to have these conversations. It's really special. I also want to give a really special shout out to the producer of our second season, Crystal Duhame, who just taught us so much. I'm just forever grateful to her for everything that she brought to the show. I also want to thank uh, the producer of our first season, Julie Tremblay, uh, working at the Phi Center. Julie really believed in the show. She really believed in us. Um, so you can really still hear the sort of spirit that we created the first season that we didn't really know what we were doing. And finally, I really want to thank my friend, David, for setting up a podcast studio in his apartment. Uh, this is where Trana and I recorded most conversations for this season. So thanks a lot, Dave. And we've said it sort of throughout this whole episode, but just to really drive it home, thank you to all of you for listening. I mean, like you said before, Thomas, it is very surreal to know that the show has resonated on such a deep level with the people that listen. That, yeah, I still can't fully believe that. And I'm truly touched and, and honored by the love that you've all shown and the time that you've spent with us. We really, really do love you all so much. And I'm so proud of this final season, this third season, and the work that we did with Aidan McMahon, our producer and editor. Um, if we sound so warm and smart and funny and snappy, <laughs> it's because of him, because he yes. edits out all the crap. <laughs> <laughs> On this note, let's do the formal credits one last time, our favorite part of the show. Let's do it. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalia Ndongo is our contributing producer. SK Robert is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Shout out to uh, Tanya Springer and Leslie Merklinger. Uh, working at CBC, who always believed in the show. Thank you so much for your support. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Fly Studio. We are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Check us out at Chosen Family Show, but also check us out on our personal pages. I'm at Trana Winter. And Thomas, where can people find you? I'm at Thomas LeBlancs, L-E-B-L-A-N-X on Instagram. And check out our column and Lucky Stars video series over at extramagazine.com. Thank you to Extra Magazine, too, for all of their support of the show and, you know, giving us this additional platform to keep talking about the stupid things that we love talking about. <laughs> and finally, thanks to you, Trana. It really was such a joy and, you know, so much fun and such a, a real, real privilege to work with you and to kind of create this really special project with you. And I'm, I, I couldn't ask for a better partner in this uh, endeavor. <laughs> don't make me cry in the last five seconds i've cried too much on this show as it is um but really thank you thomas because you really made it happen you're the one who contacted the fight you're the one who got this ball rolling it would not it truly would not exist without you um so thank you so much for being 
you know, the Renee of this <laughs> partnership. <laughs> That's good, Celine. That's really good. <laughs> that was just so great. Okay, that's the okay, end. That's the sign that's off. It. We never, ever, ever can say goodbye. Can and say this goodbye. truly is not goodbye. So don't worry. <laughs> For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.